This will catch y'all's attention, and then they always want titles from me. I'm like, I'd never do titles. <laughs> but tonight's message is going to be entitled, A Thigh, Ten Camels, Ten Camels, and a Bride. So that, that ought to be like, if you're not interested in nothing else, you're going to know, why did he come up with that? But uh, basically what we're going to be talking about tonight, you know, a lot of people want to know what is God's will for their life. Who are they going to marry? Should I take this job that's come up? You know, does God want me to go to college? Is he prompting me to move and so on and so forth, right? I mean, we all have those situations arise through life. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we know how to find God's will for my life? And believe me, there are thousands of books out there on how to find God's will for your There's a good one back there, as a matter of fact, isn't there, John? There really is. Be a good one to read. So there's many ways that people through the years have come up with discerning God's will. You know, there's this old story, this middle-aged farmer, he's out working in the field, and for years he's desired to be an evangelist. So he's out working in the field, and he gets tired, and he sits under a tree, and he's looking up at the sky, and all of a sudden he sees the clouds form a big P. And then right next to that cloud is another one that forms a big C. So he hops up, hops up and says to himself, that is a sign from God because the P is for preach and the C is for Christ. So immediately he sells his farm and went out to preach Christ. And he felt it was God's leading to do that. Unfortunately, he was horrible. He was a horrible preacher. (laughs) So he sees his big P and his big C after one of his sermons One of his neighbor comes up to him, his neighbors come up to him after hearing one of his sermons and whispers in his ear and he says, are you sure that when you saw that P and C, God wasn't just trying to tell you to plant corn? (laughs) That's an old story, but it makes the point, right? So, you know, we ask ourselves, how are we to discern God's will for our lives? So, you know, do do we go out and buy a ton of alphabet soup? and put it in the cupboard, and eat soup every day, and with every spoonful, look down and see what words the letters are forming to get direction, and then do it again and see what comes up next. I mean, that's one way. Or do we pray and just go by our feelings, and then one night our neighbor at 3 in the morning gets a knock at his door, opens the door, and there you are. Well, I felt led to hand you this track at 3 in the morning. And your neighbor might tell you, I feel led to give you some buckshot to get rid of you. So, or, or do we play Bible roulette? A lot of people do this, you know, you're having marital problems. And you're wondering, I just don't know what to say to my wife. What should I say to my wife? So you take your Bible, and you flip it open, and you pray, God guide me, and you stick your finger down on a verse, and here's what he gives you to say to your wife from Exodus. Get thee from me. Take heed to thyself. See my face no more. For the end of the day thou seest my face, thou shalt die. <laughs> and you think to yourself, well, you know, that seems a little hard, but, but I did pray first. <laughs> but believe it or not, I mean, now, our pastor, okay, so we've all heard the testimonies. There are the exceptions, right? You had that happen once, and I know several cases I can think of where God has blessed somebody that's done that. But I'm saying that's not really our primary method of discerning God's will because you might end up in trouble in your wife. You'd be rid of your divorce and remarriage problem because she probably wouldn't be with you anymore, right? 
be free to remarry. So those examples seem funny, but here's the deal. I mean, I took like extreme cases where people a lot of times do those exact same things, just not in that extreme of a way. But I'd like to give this quote from a great man of God from a few years back that I think is true. And he said this. Think about this. He said, to know the will of God is our greatest knowledge. And to do the will of God is our greatest achievement. Let me say that again. To know the will of God is our greatest knowledge of anything we can know. To know that is our greatest knowledge. And to do the will of God is our greatest achievement. So aren't they both extremely extremely important? I mean, knowing God's will, but also doing God's will. But guess what? What you don't know, you can't do, right? So the knowing has to come first. And I think God has given us many places in his word where he's laid out principles on how we can discern his will. Principles that will show us how God makes his will known to his children. And listen, I I mean, it's really not this five-step do this, do this, do this, and everything works out great, right? And they try to make books come out that way. That's just not the way it works. It'd be nice if it did, wouldn't it? Just do these five easy steps, like putting John's Lego sets together, and man, there you got it. The kingdom's built. But it doesn't work that way because to find God's will, there is going to be a spiritual price that you're going to have to pay, and it's not really easy. So, if you would, uh, turn to Genesis 24, please. Here we are, back in the Old Testament. You know, I feel like people probably think I can't preach from the New Testament. Well, I do like the Old Testament. You know, we're going to start, every time he preaches, it's like Uncle Saul's story hour, you know. But, here we are, Genesis 24. So, uh, let's just see if we can learn anything out of Genesis 24 from this chapter, out of Abraham's life on how to find God's will. Just to give a little background coming up to this, I know you all know it, but coming up to this part in the Genesis account, you know, Abraham has left his his home country with Sarah. They've settled in Canaan. They've seen the miraculous manifestation of the birth of Isaac. He's offered Isaac up on the altar on Moriah, Mount Moriah, and God spared him there. And Abraham's been blessed by God. He settles in Beersheba, and he is a rich man, blessed by God. He's got camels when no one had camels. That's the way that history had to do some study on that. There wasn't many camels back, but Abraham had them. He's a wealthy man. And also up to this point, we just find a few chapters before Sarah dies at 127 years old, and Abraham realizes, my days are numbered. I'm not going to live forever. And he knows something. So he's got a son, Isaac, that's 40 years old, and that's an, he's unmarried. He's the most eligible bachelor in Beersheba, Isaac is, at 40. Because back in those days, if you weren't married by 30, you were late, real late. So Abraham knows that this promise God has given him of a seed that is going to be multiplied more than the sand on the seashore. He knows if that's going to be fulfilled, it's not going to be fulfilled with Isaac living in an empty tent. Right? Something's got to be done for that promise to be fulfilled. So here we go, chapter 24. So who's going to be? He's got to be asking himself, then, who is going to be Isaac's wife? And will just any woman do? Because there's plenty of cute girls. I'm sure plenty of cute girls in Beersheba 
all through Canaan's fair and happy land, there are some fair and happy girls. But he's asking himself, what is God's will in this matter? And really, does God even care who I marry? Because most people in the world, they do not care in the sense that it's what is God's will. I'm going to pray about that, right? And how do I find Isaac's wives? wife? That's got to be the questions he's asking. So chapter 24 here, this man named Alan Ross that I read, I thought he did a good job. Couldn't say it any better than he said it, so I'm going to tell you what he said about Genesis 24. He said the purpose of this chapter is to explain how Isaac acquired his wife, Rebecca. That's the purpose. The focus of Genesis 24 is on Abraham's servant. Not really on Abraham. It's on Abraham's servant as he follow God's guidance to find the wife of God's choosing. And the emphasis, though, in this is on the providential work of God in the circumstances of the faithful servant. You got the purpose, the focus, and the emphasis. And I think, the, you know, we're going to look at the principles eventually, all of them, I hope, laid out in this chapter. And I don't think they just apply to finding a mate. And I'm not going to talk much about that tonight. So you all get the, here you can either go out to eat two weeks from now or whatever, but I'm going to be doing part two in two weeks, okay? So um, I didn't get quite as far in my principles I wanted to lay out tonight as I thought I would because uh, sometimes these sermons kind of take on a life of their own, don't they? <laughs> you got plans, I'm going to hit this, this, and this. I'm like, I can't. I can't rush this point. So we're just going to get one point tonight in Genesis 24. We're going to look, we'll just read verses 1 to 9. So Genesis 24, verses 1 to 9, it says, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son, of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go into my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware, don't do that. Beware that thou, thou, that thou bringest not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this thy oath, only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. So the first principle I want to look at here, just in these first nine verses, and I'm actually not going to get everything I want to say out of these first nine verses tonight. But the first principle, and I think it's really probably the most important principle of finding God's will, is you have to be to where you're telling yourself, it's not my will, but it's totally God's will in the matter. 
Look at verses 2 and 3. Read those again. Abraham sent unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, my hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. So he doesn't name who this servant is here in this chapter. The servant is unnamed. But I would say that it's likely, I wouldn't say I know this for a fact, but it's likely it's Eleazar, who is Abraham's chief steward, who's talked about back in chapter 15. More than likely, I would say that's who it is. And I'm going to proceed with the understanding that's who it is, even though it doesn't say here. It could be someone else, possibly. So Eleazar, though, is going to be standing in Abraham's place, so to speak, to find God's will for Isaac, to find his wife. So in those days, a lot of times the marriages we know were made independent of the ones involved. That's just the way, and it still happens today. So for a school project, they sent us, they said, you guys got to go out. We don't care where you do it. It was for a missions class. They gave us a list of things they wanted us to ask. Most of them weren't even religious But they just wanted us to go find somebody from another country and ask them questions about their culture. And if you got a chance to share the Lord with them, that's fine. But it wasn't supposed to be a confrontational day. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of a funny story where I ended up and how this ended up happening. But I'll tell you what, I ended up in a place in Louisville. I was the only white guy for a long distance. I'll tell you that much, right? And they, they, they sent me to this place where it was a Muslim grocery store. And I walked in there, and I didn't know if anybody was even going to speak English. But I went up to the guy behind the counter. I said, look, i got this thing to do. I said, I'm willing to pay the person if they'll just talk to me. <laughs> I said, i got to find somebody that's from another country. Do you know somebody? He's like, oh, there's tons of people here. He said, just, just relax, my friend. Well, I'll tell you, in the Middle East, they don't do anything fast. So i got to relax for quite a while. And finally, he motioned me over. He said, here, you can talk to this guy. So I talked to this guy from the Senegal. And I went out, and I got my list. I said, look, you know, he didn't want to. He was offended, though, when I said I'd pay him. I'm more than glad to do this. So I talked to the guy for an hour, and it was fascinating. And I did talk to him about some of their marriage customs, which I found fascinating. And, like, when he got married, his uncle stood in his place at the marriage ceremony, and that was legal and valid to marry his wife. But what's interesting is, I don't want to get into all of that, but in Senegal, 33% today of the girls get married before they're the age of 18. And my daughters are back there thinking, you better not go there, Dad, as a missionary. (laughs) I want to get married before 18. Now, Malawi, that country that people have gone to that we know of, 50% of them are married before the age of 18. In Niger, 75% of the girls are married before the age of 18. And here's a little description I read. It says, in rural areas, parents often in the rural areas arrange the marriages for the children. So a young man wants a young woman. Well, his dad wants to check out and make sure that family's okay. And it says they do it just like with Abraham did. They'll find a go-between to go and talk to that family. And then the, the father decides whether that girl's suitable based on the woman's family's background. So... He decides that. He sends the go-between back, and I thought this was kind of funny. He sends the guy back with cola nuts. They used to have the old cola, uncola nut commercial. Well, maybe that's where it came from, but they would send cola nuts to the woman's parents. And if they accepted those cola nuts, if they liked the young man, they would accept him, and the marriage was set. But then they not only had to give him the nuts, which probably didn't amount to much. That was probably just a token thing. They had to give him money 
And then it was expected to get a television set, a sewing machine, jewelry, and fashionable clothes. And that would seal the deal. So, you know, what we see going on here, I guess the point of me bringing all that up is what we see going on here in Genesis 24 for that area of the world, it's foreign to us. We don't do things that way. But it's really up to this present day. It's not that foreign there to have somebody be a go-between. But I'll tell you what, though, there is a major difference between the go-betweens you're going to read in a Muslim community and what we see here. Because these two men, Abraham and his servant Eleazar, they are committed to having God oversee who is choosing and overseeing the circumstances that all happens. That's a major difference, isn't it? So Abraham, and we just read, he demands that his servant pledges his commitment not to do his own will. Eliezer was from Damascus. He's not going to do things the way they might have done things in Damascus. He has him pledge. He is not going to do things his way, but he is going to do only the way God wants it done. That is it. So he had to get his ideas, Eliezer did, of what he thought was best for Isaac and how this all might work out out of his head totally, didn't it? Even if he didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. So here's what we want to look at, though. How did Abraham require his servant to pledge or swear to do things God's way? And look in verse 2. What's, what's it say there at the end of that verse? Abraham tells him to do what? He says, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. You ever thought about what that's all about? So that same vow is Jacob has Joseph do that to him in Genesis 47. Basically the same thing because he says, I want you to pledge putting your hand under my thigh. You will take me back to the land of my fathers that has been promised to us. Made him swear to that, the same thing. But do you know what? That is the only two places that that is recorded in the Bible about putting your hand under a thigh. And you know what else is interesting? I didn't know this. It's the only place in all of ancient literature that's ever talked about. Because a lot of times they find they've got these ancient Nunzi tablets where they can see some of these customs that Abraham did. They can find all that in these old tablets. They were customs of the day. That's not a custom anywhere else. And all we know about it is what you just read and I just read and what's said over in Genesis 47. So why under the thigh? Why would you think that? What's the significance of that? You know, why didn't they just do it like I'd make a deal with you. We'd just do a handshake, right? Or sign a contract or give them a kiss on the neck or something. They like to kiss over there. Give them a kiss on the neck. Well, here, maybe this add a little insight into it. What was God's covenant with Abraham? What was the covenant? Just, you want to have something to be able to put in. We're not going to go to a lot of places tonight, but uh, stick something there in 24. And just go back a few chapters to Genesis 15. It's not too far away. I think we could look at it. What was God's covenant with Abraham? And it's given several places, but we'll just look at it here in Genesis 15, 18. Now let's pick it up in 17. It said, It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And look in verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And what was the covenant saying? Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, far south, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, which is far north. So what's the key to this covenant he's making? 
And we know about it in the New Testament. What is the key to it? It's the seed, isn't it? With no seed, there is no covenant, is there? You cut off the seed and you've just cut off the covenant because that's what it's all about. What good is it the land if you have no people there? It's the land, the people with God reigning. So finding Isaac a wife and not any wife, but God's chosen wife, that's what the covenant hung on. Because if he doesn't get married and have children, it stops, doesn't it? Even with his miraculous birth, he still had to have a seed. So not to be crude, but where does seed come from? The area near your thigh. And I could say what some of the commentaries say that is suggested where he's really putting that hand, but I don't know that it doesn't say that. It says the thigh, but it's still near the area where seed comes from. And I think that's the significance of the whole thing. So Abraham's saying to his servant, you're going to swear by the God of heaven, the God who has given me a covenant to multiply my seed in the land. You're going to swear, pointing to that covenant with your hand under my thigh, to do his will and only his will in regards to how my son's wife is chosen. So in other words, it's going to be God's way only, and you're going to swear to that. And Eliezer, who was a faithful steward, he swore to follow the directions of God's will by doing that. Look in verse 9. Back in, We have to go back to 24, I'm in 15. But look in verse 9, he does it. After Abraham explains everything to him, it says in verse 9, And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swear to him concerning the matter. He's pledging himself to do God's will. So you'd be out there saying maybe, well, what does that have to do with us today? You know, a lot of people, they read things in the Bible and they're like, well, we're just supposed to imitate things that we read there. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to say Brother Hamilton as it talks about in Abraham here in verse 1. It says he was old and well-stricken in age. I don't want to say that Brother Hamilton is well and old-stricken in age, but he's not the same age as you were when I moved here, are you? We've had a few years pass, right? And he's always telling us, isn't he? Telling us how much God has blessed him. Got all that he wants. Sounds like Abraham to me, doesn't it? So am I saying then, because all that's true, that we should just have him stand up here, sit, probably sit, and all the men line up and the women or the men line up and we all come up here and put our hands under his thigh and swear that we're going to obey God's will for the rest of our life. Well, I'll tell you what, you go on and be the first person to try that with Brother Hamilton because you might find out his convictions on non-resistance aren't quite as strong as you thought. I'm not, I'm not going to be the first one in line to try that. So. so the Bible gives us stories like this not so that we can just imitate their culture, right, but so that we can see principles. So how do we pledge to continue Abraham's seed? We do do that. So if you put, keep something there in Genesis 24 and turn back to Galatians 3. Please. Galatians 3. Now, I'm not saying that what 
his servant did with putting his hand under his thigh points to what I'm going to say directly. But I think, I think there is a principle here that we see. So in chapter 3, Galatians 3, verses 15 to 16, look what it says. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So we all understand. So listen, we're, people saved today, we are fulfilling Abraham's covenant. That has, he's saying that has never been disannulled. The law didn't take it away. We are fulfilling that covenant. If you read Galatians, that's what it's saying. So look over then in verse 26, and look what it says here. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? But look, for as many as you have been baptized into Christ have done what? Put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And look in verse 29. And if you be Christ, then what are you? What are we? We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm saying by our baptism, we're pledging ourselves by faith to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant through Christ. We're part of that fulfillment. And so look back here in, in verse 27 there. What does it mean when he says, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ? What does it mean that we've put on Christ? You know, it's an image of putting on clothes, or if you want to say, a uniform. And when you put on an army uniform, what are you doing? Aren't you committing yourselves to do things the army's way? Because if you don't, they're either going to get rid of you or you're going to be spending a lot of time in a place you don't want to be. Is that right? That's right. So you're committing things to do the army's will is what you're saying. They are going to have you doing their will no matter what. And so you put on that uniform. That's what you do. And we put on Jesus Christ. What are we saying? We're committed to do God's will, aren't we? It's the image of Ephesians 4 of putting off our old man, right, and putting on the new man. Christ Jesus, committed to do God's will, it says in Ephesians 4. It doesn't say that, but it says putting on the new man in righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. So in a sense, when we submit to baptism, we're swearing our allegiance to obeying God's will totally and dying to our old will. That's the way baptism has traditionally been understood. It's not just some ritual we go through that's meaningless and doesn't really matter. And, well, Paul didn't make a big deal about it. I'm not going to either. No, it's a big deal. It it really is. We're putting our hands, so to speak, under God's thigh when we get baptized and committing ourselves to doing God's will for the rest of our lives. We really are. And thus fulfilling Abraham's covenant. And I would ask us all the question, have we really still taken our baptismal Baptism or baptismal vows, whatever you want to, however you want to put it, are we taking those seriously today? Because it does go back to this whole thing about we. He made a vow to his master, didn't he? 
And I'm saying those baptismal vows, we talk about marriage vows and they cannot be broken. I'm saying those baptismal vows are just as solemn, if not more than a marriage vow to the Lord Jesus Christ. So ask a new Christian in a Muslim country if they take their baptismal vows seriously. Because I'll tell you, their believers and unbelievers understand what's going on in a baptism, that that is a solemn and total allegiance that's being depicted when they do that. You get baptized in a Muslim country and you've just renounced everything in your life that you know to live totally for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are definitely in the minority there, right? So you've just blasphemed Allah by what you've done. You've cursed your family is the way they would look at it. And you've cut yourself off, literally, depending on which country, from a normal life from there on out. So guess what? Their baptisms are a true death to self, a true death to their old man. And they know it. So listen, I'd like you to listen to this. What a He's a great, in my opinion, a great 19th century pastor and theologian. You know, uh, this is just a little aside. I'd always thought of Calvin. I was telling my wife, Calvin, I always heard Calvin's just this five points of Calvinism, some guy up in a high loft study all the time and all that other. And I just didn't, I never read any of Calvin. I really didn't. I mean, I knew the five points of Calvinism. I was glad for those. But I had a teacher one time, he says, you need to get the Institutes of Calvin. He was a pious man, and he was a pastor first and foremost that cared for his flock. And I'm telling you, he's got some things to say. I'm saying the pastor theologian, that is the pattern. That is really, it's Southern where I go to school. Most of those guys that are those PhDs, they are pastors too. And so you get the practical with the other. I mean, to me, that's the way it should be, isn't it? I mean, what do you want some guy in an ivory tower telling you, I'd rather have somebody that's living and having experiences teaching me. That was free. But anyways, this man named Andrew Fuller was a pastor and a theologian and, and good at both. And listen to what he said about baptism. He said, such brethren is the profession we have made. We have not only declared in words our repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have said the same things by our baptism. We have solemnly surrendered ourselves up to Christ. You think about that that's what you did in your baptism? Solemnly surrendered yourselves up to Christ, taking him to be our prophet, priest, and king, engaging to receive his doctrine, to rely on his atonement, and to obey his laws. And Fuller wrote this. He said, the vows of God are upon us. We have even sworn to keep his righteous judgments. And without violating the oath of God, we cannot go back. Just like a marriage vow, isn't it? Seriously, I mean, have we thought about that? That we make that baptismal vow to the Lord Jesus Christ, come up out of that water. We are pledging to walk in newness of life. We're pledging that our old man, our old life is dead. We're saying that before God and witnesses, aren't we? Just like a marriage vow. And like I said, it's way more serious than a marriage vow. He said, if it be not a sin, if it be a sin not to confess the Lord Jesus through fear or shame, it is still a greater sin after we have confessed him to turn away from the holy commandment. So I just had to do a, one of my last school projects here. I had to read an account 
of a public baptism in England back in the 1800s. And actually at Southern, I've seen, I've seen pictures of the Baptists would go to rivers. They liked to baptize at rivers in the old days. And I mean, to me, I thought, I sit there and just looked at that picture. There, there are these people at this river. There's a bridge above there. Hundreds and thousands of people watching this go on. They would get churches around. And it wouldn't just be, I'll read you this story here. It'd be everybody would come out to see this. It was a public thing. Because, well, let me just finish reading. I just thought that's an amazing picture. And to me, that's like what baptism should be. A public confession. The church into the world. That I am, I am not ashamed to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Master. And I'm publicly committing myself to him as that for the rest of my life. Not, I want to go do it in a, a pool where nobody's around. Not that that would be illegitimate, but... So anyways, this man wrote about this baptism. It was done in a river near an open field. And the author wrote that there was a great multitude of spectators that stood on the banks on both sides to watch this baptism take place. And some had even climbed up and sat in trees. And there's people sitting on horses and carriages... I mean, the whole community had come out to see this. And here's what it said. They all behaved, saint and sinner alike, with a decent seriousness which did honor to the good sense and the good manners of the assembly. And he wrote about 1,500 saints and sinners had come to watch 48 men and women be baptized at a river. And I thought this was neat. So they start this off, and the minister gives out the words, because everybody wouldn't have known them, to a hymn, and all the people sing the hymn together. And then in front of all these people, he reads a short verse on baptism and explains the solemn commitment to these people watching what these people that are getting baptized, the solemn commitment they're getting ready to make. Explains that to them. He goes on and baptizes all 48 and when all 48 were baptized, he stood on the shore and spoke to all saints and sinners alike. And here's what he said to them. He spoke to them of the sufficiency of Scripture, the pleasure of a good conscience, the importance of a holy life, and the prospect of blessed immortality. What a sermon. I would have liked to have heard that. And then he prayed for all of them and dismissed them. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that service had any effect on the sinners that were there watching? 1,500 people, voices lifted, singing a hymn together. Silence in the crowd as the preacher is exhorting them about what baptism represents and a commitment. And I I liked what he said there about a pleasure of a good conscience. That would have spoken to me as a sinner. And my conscience was always, I was afraid of police every time I saw them. That's the one thing I used to think driving down the street. You know, I see a police car, now I can wave instead of hoping he doesn't see me. That's no joke either. But in here, these sinners are watching 48 people make a public commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought, I wrote, I found this too. This was, this class was great. So this sinner wasn't about this baptism, but this guy that was a sinner, he happened, he'd never heard of a baptism. And he happened to come on a public baptism. And here's what he wrote. He said, I was considerably affected by what I saw and heard. The solemn immersion of a person on a profession of faith in Christ carried such conviction with it that I wept like a child on the occasion. Man, 
That'd be a good reason to have a public baptism, wouldn't it? Because soon after, that same man was converted and baptized himself and became a great preacher. His name's Andrew Fuller, the guy I was just telling you about. Great gift to the church in a lot of ways. And what about the saints that were watching what went on? So let me get away from that one. We had that baptism out at Jay's Lake. I mean, I love that baptism. I'm serious. Uh, To me, uh, that was a great event. It really was. And for a couple of reasons. For one thing, what, what did that do when we're all there? For the most part, most people were there. It brought us together as a community, didn't it? I mean, I felt a sense of community. I don't think I was the only one, right? And we're there as a community, and we're witnessing the pledges of people that are, you know, most of them were new believers, relatively new, that are members of this church, right? And we're seeing them make commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that do? That kind of holds them a little bit accountable, doesn't it? In a good way, it should. And how could it not speak to children and unbelievers that are part of our assembly here? I mean, we know there's some, right, of what loyalty to Christ means. How could that not speak to them, just like the other ones I talked about? And really, too, talking about the saints, you know, when I witness a baptism like that, what does it do to us? It brings back when we were baptized. It should, right? It should bring us back to our vows. And am I keeping what that baptism symbolizes in my own life? That commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And can't we all think back? Because when does the baptism generally happen? It happens when you're newly converted, right? And you're on fire for the Lord and you're committed to doing almost to the extreme His will, aren't you? But we can think back and remember that vow we made to the Lord at our baptism. So the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because finding God's will has to begin here. Our vow and commitment to only seek His will. And it was done, I mean, we didn't know, did anybody here, I had no idea I'd be getting into trusting God for healing. All the stuff we believe, when I became a Christian, I didn't know about all that stuff. But you make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey this. That, that should be our commitment, right? Wherever that takes us, because we don't know. And there's still things we have yet to find that this word really means. We've read it, but now we really understand what it means and what it's going to cost us. And are we willing to keep that commitment to him? And we need to go back to that, just like a bad marriage. You're not going to leave. You don't leave a bad marriage. You go back to that vow, don't you? I made this commitment. God will get me through this. It's the same with your Christian walk. So placing our hand under his thigh, so to speak, we've done that and we pledge to do his will only and not our own. And I I would just say, do we really do it? Does everyone here really understand that by our baptism, we have declared our lives not our own? I mean, do we really understand that and take that seriously? So it's not our own to choose whom we're going to marry, where we live, what kind of job we have, what kind of work we have, and even who our doctor is. I would say, now it's silent now, but 20 years ago, it would not have, I wouldn't have been a problem to say that. It is now. That's, that's fine. But I'll tell you, you know, this is getting a little ahead of myself here. To do his will, I'm saying God set down parameters, hasn't he? That's what I'm going to talk about next time. I mean, we have to be committed to do his will, and then he set down parameters on what we can and cannot do according to his word. And the cannot do's takes out a lot of our options. And I would just submit this, getting ahead of myself again. James 5 is a pretty clear parameter, I think. 
And I'll tell you what, you get your commentaries, I got a bunch of them, you get to James 5 and all of a sudden these guys that have so much to say about everything, they got nothing to say about James 5. Isn't that something? But I mean, James 5 to me, it's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And it doesn't say the prayer of faith might work. What does it say? It says it will work. We don't have to be afraid of that, do we? Seriously. And if you're thinking, man, why this illness has come on me because I sinned, hey, what he deals with that even, doesn't he? He sins and he goes on to say, hey, we need to be praying for each other. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man will avail much. But it doesn't say when he'll raise him up, but he says God will. Now, I mean, if that isn't true, I'm serious. If that isn't true, I'm going to quit preaching and I'm going to quit being a Christian. Because if I can't trust that, what's the point of it all? I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not trying to be whatever saying. That's just really the way I feel. So we have to know God's will. We have to know it and be willing to totally die on our, of our own. That's the key. So George Mueller, everyone's heard of George Mueller. He's known for his life of faith and trust in God, not making his needs known. But if you ever read many books about George Mueller, he had a lot to write and say about knowing God's will. Because you think about it, what he did building those orphans' homes, hiring staff, bringing children in that he's got the responsibility to feed, clothe, educate, thousands of them. You better know that's God's will before you get undertaking that. And so I'll tell you what, you want to read some books, forget all the how-to books on how to know God's will, get Bevington. And get George Mueller books, and you'll get all you need in the Bible first. <laughs> Better say that. Uh, the Bible first. So especially if you're not asking for money, you better know it's God's will. But listen to this. Here's what he said about discerning God's will. And here's why I'm spending all night on this one point, because listen to what he said. I think he's got a lot more wisdom than I do. I really do. George Mueller was, from what I've read and heard, and anything about him, the most godly man you would ever want to meet. They, they write books, people that met him said his face just glowed at 92 years old. The guy was just sold out and godly. He was. No one's ever told me that. My face just glowed. That's a goal you can have, right? But listen to what he said. He says, I seek. When he says, this is what he wrote about discerning God's will. He said, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. Let me read that again for you. Here's what he said. I seek at the beginning. So at the beginning of searching for God's will, the first thing he does is to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own. In regard to a given matter, nine tenths of the difficulties, the biggest problem we have with finding God's will is we got our own will in the way is what he's saying. Nine tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. And I'm telling you, that is easier said than done. Don't we all know that? It really is. He says, when one is in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. 
So it's a matter, isn't it, then, of climbing up on the altar and sacrificing, we sing the song, your desires, your thoughts, your plans, your dreams, and seeing that God Almighty has our best interest in heart. He does, and he's also one to be feared. Let's go back to Genesis, if you would, 24. Now look what it says in verse 3. Well, he says, put your hand under my thigh. In verse 3, he tells Eliezer, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. So listen, he didn't have him swear by some pagan God, did he? He said, I want you to swear by the God that made the heaven and the earth. And I'm going to tell you, that carries some weight with Eliezer. There's all kinds of gods floating around back then. But what he said there carried some weight with Eliezer. You know why? Think about what Eliezer would have witnessed being Abraham's chief servant. What's, what's one thing that he would have witnessed? He's saying the God of heaven. Well, I'll tell you what. He sat there and would have witnessed Sodom and Gomorrah. It said fire came from where? It came from heaven and totally destroyed them for their wickedness. You think he wasn't aware of what was going on there? I'm sure he was. And it talks about in that account that Abraham walked out of his tent and he looked and he said he could see that fire coming down as a pillar of smoke, a furnace over that thing. And I mean, that had to be an incredible sight. You think Eliezer's just sitting in his tent not going to see that? I guarantee you he saw that. He saw the justice and the severity of God in seeing that, didn't he? And what about he's the God of earth? Well, I think he knew better than anybody else what the Lord did in giving him a son. He's like, seeing my master's 100 years old, Sarah's 90. That, that stuff doesn't happen on the earth, right? And he's seeing in that, what's he seeing? What, um, I mean, it was, it was a, uh, a blight on them not to have a child. And he's seeing what amazing grace and mercy God has had on my master in giving him a child at his old age, fulfilling that promise. This is a God of faithfulness, hesed, faithful mercy, faithful love. He would have seen both, wouldn't he? So I imagine when Abraham had him swear by the God of heaven and earth, there was some fear and trepidation and awe in Eliezer. Like I said, he'd just seen that justice and severity on Sodom, but he'd also seen God's mercy on his master in the birth of that miracle baby. And he tells him, put your hand under my thigh, Eliezer. And I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. And he says, that will motivate you to stay on that altar and to do God's will. Because you've seen both. And I think Paul used the same reasoning over there in Romans. So if you turn over to Romans 11... So in Romans 11, Paul tells them, the Christians in Rome, that they've been grafted into God's olive tree and Israel has been broken off. And he tells them, hey, you think that's something to think you're something about? That's something to be proud of? Well, look what he tells them in verses 20 to 22. He says, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. And what does he tell them? Be not high-minded, but what? Fear. Fear. 
He says, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also not spare thee. Behold, look, behold, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but towards thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And look what he says down there in verse 30. He says, for as ye in times past have not believed God, and that's all of us in here. But he says, yet now you've obtained mercy through their unbelief. And so that is what leads us up into what he says. We've heard this verse how many times? A lot of times, right? Everyone could probably quote most of it. That takes us right into chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And look what Paul says. This is pointing back to what he just said about the goodness and severity of God, the mercy of God. He says, I beseech, the word is beg. He says, I beg you therefore, brethren. Now, he doesn't bring up the severity of God. He's begging them by the mercy they've experienced of God, right? He says, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do what? Pledge yourself to do his will, to be sold out to him by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable. The word is service. It could, it's many times translated worship. Service. and It's service in the temple. It's the way you worship God through your service. That's your reason. That's worship. Is giving God everything. It would include your praise, but it includes everything else too. Presenting your body. And he says in verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect. What are we looking after? What do we want? The will of God. And so how do we find it? I said, you've got to be up on that altar. Isn't that what we're looking at here? Climbing up on that altar. So Paul's told him, you've beheld the mercy and severity of God. Don't forget it. And he says, but I beg you by the mercy God has shown you, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And so don't throw it away. Don't throw it away what God has graciously given you. Continue in his goodness and present your bodies a living sacrifice. Consecrate yourself to God. And don't be like you were in the world, consecrated to it, consecrate yourself to God. And then what is the result of that? What are we talking about? Then you'll know the will of God. Because the will of God, he's saying here, is not going to be what the world is promoting or trying to get you to conform to. We've heard this many times. You know, in marriage, the world is saying what? You get the best looking one you can find and the one you're going to have the most fun with. That's the way they tell you to find a wife or the job. Get the one that pays the most money. In your free time, do what gives you the most pleasure. Ministry, what brings the most attention and acclaim. And your friends, the only friends you need to have are the ones that are the most popular. That's the way I was in the world. I just wanted people that were cool and popular. The other ones I treated like dirt, to my embarrassment. But listen, there's certain things that we do know, right, that God wants all of us to do no matter what. And what is that? Read the Word. Isn't that His will? Do we know that? We don't have to pray and fast about that. Praying is God's will for all of us. Ministry to others and fellowship and on and on. And doing those things on a daily basis is the foundation 
of how God is going to show you his will in other areas. So if you don't spend any or very little of your time praying, reading the Bible, meditating, fellowshipping with him, guess what? You're you're not going to know what God's will is. You're not on the altar. And so the question is, well, then how much should I pray? Do I have to, you know, how much should I read the Bible? How much should I fellowship? I'd say get on the altar and find out. The Bible doesn't lay down. But if you're not doing any of it because you're fellowshipping with the Internet, TV, novels, whatever it is you spend time with, then that just shows your commitment, right? It really does. So does anyone in here, and I'm sure there's different, I know some people, I, anyone have a big decision that they're getting ready to make? And I would say based on what we read, principle one, go back to your beginning. Go back to when you committed yourself to do God's will at your baptism with all of your life. Think back when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You said, I'm going to be the new man pledged to walk in newness of life by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it ourselves. Do you have a decision to make? Then climb up on the altar. We just read it, Romans 12. Get before the Lord. Let him search your heart to see if you've placed all your worldly desires your ambitions and all that before doing his will. It's going to take a little bit of time, isn't it, to get yourself quiet enough to find those things out. So let me just finish saying this for myself. You know, I've just graduated from the seminary. And so now for myself, I've got to decide how I'm going to use the time that I had dedicated to studying, writing, and taking tests. (laughs) What am I going to do with that time? Because that was taking a lot of my time, and I've got too many options. My dad, my dad, he thinks, you know, not in school anymore, and, and he wants me to go with him traveling in his RV and his truck and, and going golfing. Like, we would do that all the time if my dad had his way. <laughs> and golf. I mean, he must be, they got this big trip planned for me out west. I'm like, Dad, you know, I, I don't know about that. So is traveling out west to sin, playing golf sinful? I mean, I guess it just depends on how much you do it, doesn't it? But I'll tell you, me and Greg were talking the other day. I just had my 55th birthday, so I figure, I mean, I may not be here tomorrow. I don't know. But at the most, I've got 30 years or more left in my life, the way I look at it. And I'm telling you, the older you get, the quicker it goes by, doesn't it? And I'm seriously just looking at myself. Do I want to face the Lord when that time comes, that's sooner than later at this point, with a travel guide in one hand and a nine iron in the other? I'm serious. I really don't. So I like I like to face him knowing that I was on the altar seeking his will for my life and doing it. That's the way I'd like to face him. And for me, at times when I think about my options, you know, that might mean going to some place that I really wouldn't choose to go. I don't know. It might mean spending my free time in ways that I'd rather not. You know, we only have so much free time because there's going to be so much time brushing your teeth, sleeping, eating, right? We all only have so much free time. What do we do with that time? What are we going to say to the Lord we do with our free time when that day comes? Spending time in free times I'd rather not and dealing with issues that I would, in the past, just would have run away from. But guess what? If, let me just end with this. If it's God's will for all of us, whatever it is, even if it's something you know I'd just rather not be doing this, I'd rather be somewhere else, 
doing something else, right? Not having to be with this person is just hassling me every day. I'd like to get another job. And God's saying, I want you there. You're going to be a light to me, right? But if it's God's will, guess what? We're going to see he will guide your steps. And in the end, you're going to be blessed. Because you're not, you're not going to be blessed if you're not in his will, right? So it may not always minister to our flesh, but it will minister to our spirits in the long run, won't it? Amen. So, Lord willing, we'll look at some other principles in a couple weeks out of that chapter. Maybe we'll get past one more. No promises. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for once again this precious word that you've given us and all the principles, Lord, that you've laid out in your word to help us find our way through this life. And we could see from the life of Abraham and his servant that you will guide our steps. You'll lead us to the right mate, the right job, that you will guide our steps with your eyes, Brother Hamilton said. We just thank you, Lord, that you'll do that for us all. I ask that you'll make this word real in all of our hearts, that we can meditate on it and gain something from it, from your word in Genesis 24. And I just thank you for this time you've given us together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Joel. Don't want to stand up, Jay. <laughs> Let's stand up. Amen. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh, I will seek you in the in your way and step by step you'll lead me and I will follow you all of my let's sing it again oh God you are my God and I will ever
appreciate your all's attention. I mean, I really do feel like we have a church here of people that really do want to know the Lord's will and do it. I really do. I think that's the heart of the church, too. Just greet somebody and don't get out of here without saying hi to somebody, and you're dismissed. Amen. <laughs>